Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hi, I'm Lizzie, and in this video, I'm going to show you how to make the perfect snacks for your next vampire rave. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sam, and I'm so hungry, but the only thing in this house is curtains. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the hunger. <laughs> The hanger. <laughs> I keep calling it the hanger because I'm like, someone eat something that isn't a Big Mac or a raw <laughs> piece of steak. What the fuck? Uh, and this is Subtextual, the podcast where we take a queer lens to all of your favorite movies and show you the gay shit that was already there. This one is, if you can believe it, not that subtextual at all. It's pretty Overt. explicit. Yeah. <laughs> Rated R explicit. Um, before we get started, we have a couple of announcements because as you know, the best month of the year, aka October, aka Spooky Movie Month, yep. is about to kick off, which will be five straight episodes of Spooky fucking movies yes we've got five mondays in october and we are gonna milk it for all it's worth bitch yeah and we're doing a full spectrum of genre and everything so uh expect to see another extravaganza episode mm -hmm. we did mm -hmm. that for jennifer's body last year and we're doing that for another absolute iconic film this year i'm not gonna spoil it you'll just have to wait and see we're also, if you're in New Orleans or the area, on October 8th at Zoni Mash Brewing, we'll be doing a live watch-along, drink-along trivia fest called The Gay Movie Fun Show. Uh, the film will be Jennifer's Body. Body, yaddy, yaddy. Let's go. And also wanted to let y'all know that we have some new merch. We sure do. We've got tote bags and lighters. The lighters are so fucking cute, you guys. Yeah, they are handmade by us, so um, they've got a little bit of love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we also have these cute little canvas totes. Mm -hmm. Check our social media for a picture. They're literally just the cutest thing you've ever seen. Shout out to our patrons. This episode was actually chosen by our highest level patrons. Um, they selected The Hunger for us. If you are part of our Patreon, you get that kind of perk, plus a bunch of other perks, including video episodes, bonus episodes, merch, blah, 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 blah. The list goes on. If you're not able to participate in monetarily supporting us right now it's all good go give us a little rating on spotify or apple or however you're listening to this every little thing counts including you pressing play today so thanks babes thank you so much for pressing play on the hunger or the hanger or whatever we're calling it. hunger h-o-n-g-e-r i need someone to eat something in this movie <laughs> God, all they eat is like the most unhealthy meat ever like where's the hummus in these people's house there's just slam and sherry, oh, sherry not eating a single fucking thing god sam have you seen this movie i had seen it a long time ago and it was the shiva baby thing where i saw it once initially and put it completely so far back in my mind that i didn't remember anything about it and then i watched it again for this episode and i have a lot of feelings oh god well, we love feelings here. <laughs> I've got a lot. Uh, what about you, Lee? Yeah, I had watched this film a long time ago, like eight years ago or something, post-college. I don't remember a lot about the plot. I was telling you guys, I kind of remember the look of it being really um, caught by the way, like the visual style. I know David Bowie is a cast member. My roommate at the time was a huge David Bowie fan. So that's probably why we were watching uh, watching this film. But yeah, I'm kind of foggy on the story here. So I'm excited to hear you guys kind of go over it. 
Well, the story is the lease of this oh. films. <laughs> Maybe that's why I forgot. Style over substance. Okay. But oh, yeah. hella style. It is so much style over substance, and I don't like the style. So it was just way too much for me. I was wondering if you would like this film because it has like certain elements of Queen of the Damned-ish. Like yeah. it's super goth, super dark, super edgy, and has some beautiful people in it. I was like, this is really a toss-up for Sam. Yeah, it has all of the ingredients, but it's just prepared in a way that I don't enjoy. I love Susan Sarandon. Um, oh, yeah. She's so fucking hot. I'm obsessed with her. Catherine Deneuve really looks like Melanie Laurent, which I also had a huge crush on her. And then David Bowie. I'm obsessed with Labyrinth. Anytime David Bowie acts, my ass is in a seat. But the style was like almost nauseating to me. So much slow-mo, so many curtains in between (laughs) the shit that I wanted to see. Like anytime anything significant was happening, there's a curtain over this person. Dude, that is like actually a stylistic marker of the director of this film. I don't like it. (laughs) I feel like I'm queasy. Like I was getting motion sickness watching all these curtains like flow around in slow motion. You're like trying to like bat (laughs) the curtains out of the way. You're like, I'm just trying to look at Fuck it, surrendered. Give it to me. Yes. Just yeah. can you just can you just put things in regular speed and stop obstructing my vision because I'm gonna <laughs> actually throw up. What did you think about this movie? Um, I love a vampire movie. I will forgive a vampire movie's flaws so much quicker than almost any other genre. I do think the things I love about vampire movies were a little bit lacking in this film, mm-hmm. but ultimately I could see myself rewatching this again if you kind of just like let yourself not take it too seriously. It is a very fun film to watch. It's very short. It's very stylish. It's got, I'm sorry, it's got mom and dad in it. Susan Sarandon and David Bowie are going to do it for me every time. Yeah. Is it my favorite film? No. Is it a great film to watch during Halloween? Fuck yes. Yeah, we're getting you warmed up for Halloween, especially with this film. It has so many things that I like on their own. I think together for me, it just doesn't hit, but Mm -hmm. it's one of those movies you can definitely put on and fall asleep to because it's Mm -hmm. slow, um, stylistic. It's kind of like hypnotic. This is like kind of horror movie that I could see people being like, oh, it's my comfort film. Like this is my comfort horror movie. Mm -hmm. There's no spikes in sound or, you know, it's just the same level all the way across. Yeah. Very dreamy. Um, So why are we talking about this movie today on this particular podcast? Bisexual Bisec bicons. You've been hitting us with a biconography. <laughs> the biconography expands. And this was one that was recommended to us forever ago. And then I read the premise and was like, fucking, I'm doing this film at some point. And then when our patrons voted for it, I was like, let's go. Pedal to the metal. So bicons, Susan Sarandon and David Bowie, of course. I was hoping they would kiss in this film, and I did not get that. Yeah, it's toted as a love triangle, but David Bowie pieces out very quickly. It's an, it's not a love triangle, I no, would say. No, that's just like a marketing term, I mm-hmm. think. Like, it doesn't actually involve a triangle of any sorts, which is unfortunate. But uh, one thing I really noticed in this film, in particular about those two, is that they look so similar. Did you clock Bowie that? Bowie and Sarandon. Their face shape, the haircut, and the eye shape especially. What they wear. What they wear. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was intentional or if that was just like the style of 1983 that we loved, but I was here for it. And also I heard one of my favorite fun facts about this production is that Susan Sarandon a few years ago after David Bowie's death 
said on record that they had had a relationship <gasps> during the production of this film. No way. Yeah. And I said, add it to the wank bank. Do they, they only have but like one scene together. Yeah. Of them like in the lab or whatever. Oh my God. Let's go. I was just telling Lee about the relationship that didn't happen that should have between Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock during the taping of Speed. Speed. Yeah. I could just assume, I could just see them together so easily. Well, they had crushes on each other, but were so nervous about it that neither of them told each other. And then 20 years later, it like surfaced somehow. And they were like, I was not only like receptive to that crush. I was also obsessed with you. Oh no. Yeah. So they would just, they both were trying to remain super professional. That's so sweet and so unnecessary. If you watch interviews from Speed, it looks like they were going to like have sex at any moment. I'm so sad they didn't get to do that. What a great couple. It might happen someday. Yeah, there's still time. Mm -hmm. They're both so young. Some other reasons we're talking about this film today is that in general, vampires are very queer. If a vampire is in a film, it's a vampire film. There's probably something to discuss in terms of sexuality, queer or otherwise. Don't you mean companionship? Um, Don't you mean they were roommates? (laughs) Lestat and whatever Brad Pitt's name in Interview with the Vampires, Mm -hmm. they were just roommates. Yeah. Obviously. They just raised they a just child. They just raised a child. 300 years yes. together. Um, and then also, of course, the absolutely iconic, whether you like it or not, gay sex scene. <laughs> oh, God. This shit has this and disobedience sex scene. Disobedience is a little bit farther up in like what the fuck is happening. <laughs> but the amount of curtains in this sex scene <laughs> is just downright disorienting. Bringing it back to the curtains will lead me to talking about the director. Oh, yeah. So the director is Tony Scott, who we have already discussed in length in another episode of the podcast. Top Gun. Ridley Scott's little brother? Yes, Ridley Scott's (laughs) little brother, Tony Scott. This was his directorial debut, coming off of a very extensive career of directing big-budget commercials for really manly cars and razors and other manly shit. Um, He directed other films in the 80s and 90s, like Beverly Hills Cop 2, Man on Fire, Taking of Pelham 123. He worked a lot with Denzel. Man on Fire, dude. Man on Fire. I fucking love that movie. Yeah, like I said, this was his first feature, which is kind of crazy given the the stars. Like, they're like, hey, sir, like, you want to come over to America and make, like, a really obtrusive and unconventional... (laughs) vampire movie just someone as famous as the beatles just like how about you just throw david bowie into your first feature and just act really casual around him and then kind of direct him like you're his boss and Catherine deneuve who was insanely famous at this point and susan sarandon who was like ramping up her career for sure um susan sarandon i'm i'm bowing my head to her you have fed the gay community (laughs) oh my god she has done so much for us rocky horror Rocky Horror. This film? Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise. It's in the room with us right now, our beloved copy of Thelma and Louise, which we kiss before every episode. And I'll reckon, I'll say that stepmom did a lot for gay men. And please confirm that. Yeah. Because I, I, that's a belief I hold based on no evidence whatsoever. (laughs) Well, she came out as bi a few years ago. And did anyone even question it? We knew. We already knew. But we love the confirmation and we love... You coming out publicly on some talk show. Like, how many fucking clips of celebrities coming out publicly on talk shows do I have saved on my YouTube? 
So many. How do you think I get out of bed every day? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, who's coming out today? (laughs) Um, So yeah, Tony Scott directed this film. It was based off of a book, which knowing me, if I had had the time, I would have ordered the book and read it, but I didn't have time. Mm -hmm. But it was written in 1981. And basically, before it was even like a completed manuscript, it was already in the works to become a film. And Rice, what the fuck? And is the book of the same name? Book of the same name. Book of the same plot, queer elements included, it feels. Again, I haven't read the book, but it seems from any plot summary I found online that it's pretty much the same film, including the style outweighing the substance. Um, There was talks for a sequel to this film in 2021. The director of Debs, Angela Robinson, was in (gasps) talks with one of the writers of American Horror Story to do a sequel (gasps) to no avail, unfortunately. But uh, the breath, the air that's (laughs) left my lungs, it being... Wow. Angela Robinson, that's crazy. Ass in seat. You know, maybe we'll put it out into the ether because there's been so many times that we go to do an episode, we drop the episode, and then like two days later, some like crazy IndieWire article drops that's Mm -hmm. like, oh, this random obscure movie from the 90s you haven't heard about except for this podcast subtextual just talked about it. Well, we're doing another one or we're revamping it. Like this happens to us all the time. So niche at This is probably too niche even for Lizzie to get this reference, but if Girl Trash, the musical, got made, then The Hunger, directed by Angela Robinson, should definitely get made. That's for someone out there. That's for someone, neither Lizzie. Catching strays. (laughs) Someone out there, I please know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Please validate this woman. Yes. Oh, so with that, let's get into the plot. Help her, for she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget, no matter how hard and how long you try. The cruel elegance of David Bowie. The open sensuality of Susan Sarandon. The open sensuality. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so bad. this is going to tie in, I promise. So Jimmy Buffett just died, right? And I read like a New York Times blurb about his death that called him the... Wait, stop, wait, stop, wait, stop. You can't just say it like that. The news broke like on my birthday. Lizzie and I were on vacation in Florida. We were about to like make a sandwich and go sit on the beach. And then she informed me that Jimmy Buffett died. And the New York Times went so out of pocket. They called him... The roguish bard of island escapism. (laughs) (laughs) What? Open sensuality of Susan Sarandon. The roguish bard of island escape. Like, I've not, since you've said Shimothy Talame, the only thing that's ever come close to replacing that has been the roguish bard of island escapism. (laughs) And it's just bonking up there. And I have like jobs and responsibilities too. But it's just been the roguish bard of island escapism. And now it's been replaced with the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon. You will see her nipple. Just say you see her tits. You don't need to do this bullshit with open sensuality. Oh, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. I wish I could say that trailer was bad, but it was actually very good at conveying how bad the movie is. No, your expectations will be met and not exceeded by this trailer. All right, so we open the film, like we often do, on the dark, smoky, neon doomscape that is a vampire goth rave. Have you ever seen Blade? Have you ever seen Queen of the Damned? We are 
fucking dance raving with vampires. <laughs> We're all wearing leather. If you're on the fence about seeing Blade, just mini tangent. The intro for Blade is probably one of the like one of the coolest fucking opening scenes of any movie. If you've ever considered watching any vampire movie, just fucking watch it. Just do it. Including this film. Mm -hmm. So we're in this rave. We meet two leather-clad, probably vampires, Miriam and John, played by Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie. Um, They're seducing a young couple in the crowd. And we're also cutting back and forth. I love this opening sequence. It was very jarring because you're doing, like, tone shifts between, like, them riding their limo to the club with this, like, crazy performance by this, like, goth rock star who this is Peter Murphy from a band called Bauhaus. This guy was basically called the godfather of goth. He, like, I'm not a goth subculturalist, but this film is really important to goth subculture. They claim it. And this guy was one of the first people to originate the sound of goth rock. So you're not a goth, but would you say you're a roguish bard of island escapism? <laughs> I'm closer to that <laughs> than the godfather of goth. Inside of your two wolves. <laughs> um, Catherine Deneuve, um, I recognize her from Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Mm-hmm. which is like a super classic musical that I really can't recommend enough. She's a French actress, so most of her work is in France. Uh, she was also in a film called Eight Women, which is a great film. But yeah, she's great. She's a classic actress. And then David Bowie. I mean... Was this before or after a Labyrinth? Probably before. Oh, yeah. Labyrinth was in 86. So this is three years before that. Damn, and he also played, um, what's the... Um, oh, a Man Who Fell to Earth. A Man it? Who Fell to Earth was probably before this one. Yeah, that was 1976, mm-hmm. so a good wow. while before. That was around the time that Rocky Horror came out. So Susan Sarandon and David Bowie had already been on the screen, but had not yet hit their peak. I think Susan Sarandon got her first Academy nom like a couple of years after this, and David Bowie was in Labyrinth a couple of years after this, so... They're, like, right at the cusp of their film careers really blowing up. Yeah. Though David Bowie was a huge star, of course. Was she nominated for Stepmom? Because I will lose my shit. Okay. Her first nomination was... Actually, I was wrong. Susan Sarandon's first Academy Award nomination came a year prior with a film called Atlantic City. Hmm. Then again in 92 with Thelma and Louise, which is the best film I've ever seen. Um, she didn't actually win until 1996. For Dead what? Man Walking. Stepmom doesn't get enough recognition. Stepmom doesn't seem to have gotten her any noms or wins. <gasps> uh, but come on now. <laughs> a Bad Mom's Christmas did get her worst supporting actress at the Raspberry Awards. Whatever. <laughs> Let her fucking live her life. Let her do Bad Mom Christmas. Ah. So these two are obviously vampires. Like if you're going to this kind of nightclub wearing these kinds of outfits, you're a vampire. Yeah. It always is, like, so hilarious to me in the scene where we meet the vampires of the film or TV series. Like, I'm thinking specifically meeting Angel and Buffy. Yeah. And... Oh, what? He's a vampire? I'm sorry. Isn't he the hottest person? Like, he is shrouded in some sort of demonic light every time you see him (laughs) and you're surprised in a world full of vampires that he's a vampire. They're always at, like, the outskirts of the dark club. It's Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious. Like, he steps out of the darkness into a spotlight. You know what I mean? Every time. Mm -hmm. And when you meet Edward, they're just, like, at the table in the corner looking so much older and hotter than everyone else. It's like, they're a vampire. Wise up. (laughs) Grow up. 
Anyway, so they are seducing this young couple. They take them to, like, some house somewhere, and they both start, like, separately seducing one young person. And then they take out these, like, cunty little knives Mm -hmm. that they wear on chains around their necks and, like, slice their throat. And my first qualm with the film leads me to a short tangent about why I love vampire movies. I love vampire stories because you get to learn – the rules for that specific kind of vampire. This was in my notes. Thank you. But you know what I mean, right? Yes. You have to build a world. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, everyone will suspend their disbelief, but you have a responsibility to build a world in which I mean you have to inform the audience what is the realm of reality. What are the rules of this person, this species of vampires living And like you said, it carries across all genres, but I think you can really put the structure on a vampire movie because what they are doing involves their actual day-to-day lifestyle. Like, they Mm -hmm. have to eat. Mm -hmm. How can they do it? What does it do to them? Mm -hmm. What tools do they have at their disposal to seduce their prey? Mm -hmm. What are their weaknesses? Like, And I think one of the ways that this film excels is that it has a really interesting take on vampires. They appear to be like more born than created like just because Miriam Catherine Genev's character has chosen David Bowie's John character as her partner and consumed his blood does not necessarily make him a vampire it makes him some sort of weird hybrid which is pretty interesting but in this first scene where they're seducing this couple and like slitting their throats for blood we don't see like do they drink the blood did they collect the blood do they rub it on themselves like what is going on past this they never really explain the rules of the vampires existing in this reality and the rules that they do set, the like very few that they do set, they break. Right. Yes. So why even bother? (laughs) Right. It's very, and I don't know if it's like bad screenwriting or they just don't care about the genre or if maybe the source material doesn't explain, but I do feel like there should be some parameters that we stick to. And if you're going to, go across those parameters. If you're going to break the rules, tell me you're breaking the rules. Yeah. Tell me why you're breaking the rules. Yeah, this is a special circumstance. Bella Swan can't be smelled because that's her special human power and it affects all vampires. Like, we'll accept it. Just tell us that is the special case to the rule. I have read fan fictions that have given a shit more. (laughs) Yes. Than this. This This reads like a bad fan fiction, but like made with a lot of heart. And a lot of money. (laughs) A lot of... Horniness. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, overall, that's very confusing. Throughout this murder scene, we're kind of flashing back and forth between a medical lab where there's like one test subject monkey ripping apart another, and it's very gruesome and bloody. But in this medical lab world is where we meet Dr. Sarah Roberts, played by Susan Sarandon. She's studying how to stop aging or reverse aging. Mm-hmm. And with like the way this film is shot and edited and some of the subject matter at this point I was kind of reminded of one of my favorite films of all time The Fountain Mm. um, by Darren Aronofsky it kind of deals with like a similar world of like dark lab and like dark streets and and studying aging and trying to assign aging to like save your lover it was all very that I don't know if Hell was the only one that got that read but um, you're gonna say Curious Case of Benjamin Button (laughs) I I do have that in my notes for later (laughs) in the film and we'll get to that oh great Um, so yeah Dr. Roberts we'll call her Sarah 
go by her first name, Sarah, since she's got such an open sensuality. Her sensuality <laughs> and her blouse are so open. Open. <laughs> and her eyes. She never blinks. Studying aging, which is convenient for John and Miriam because it's clear John has begun his aging process, mm-hmm. which for this type of like human-vampire hybrid is very accelerated. Like every couple of minutes, he's basically aging a few years. They don't explain why out of nowhere he begins to age rapidly. They don't touch on that, but it's the kind of death becomes her... And I feel like Miriam in this movie really reminds me of Isabella Rossellini in Death Becomes Her, where it's like they give you eternal life, but not eternal youth. Mm -hmm. Whereas like you can live forever so long as your body survives. Mm -hmm. And the aging, John's aging in this movie stresses me out like nobody's business. So it's funny you bring up Death Becomes Her because they had the same makeup artist, a guy named Dick Smith, who wrote the book on a lot of this physical aging makeup. He also was, like, huge in films at the time. He did Scanners, which is a film we watched recently, which involves a lot of, like, body horror and decay on screen. Uh, But he also did other films like The Godfather and The Exorcist. So you can see his hand in, like, changing human form to accelerate deterioration in all Mm -hmm. those films. I think much better than the digital deterioration we see in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, my God. Can I talk about John's aging really quick? Yes, of course. The beginning of his aging is very subtle. It's very well done. It's like, it, it's actually astounding because because in 83, you don't know what a 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 70-year-old David Bowie looks like. But watching in 2023, you do. And it's pretty like on par with how he actually aged. But there it becomes, it's a bell curve. And there is a <laughs> steep decline when he is like in the 90s where they have to put so much prosthetics on him that his head is massive. Yeah, And he yeah. looks like the only thing I can liken his his look to is a boiled peanut. <laughs> Okay, so we got like boiled peanuts. But like one you drop on the ground, so it kind of has little hairs sticking to it. It's just a massive peanut. It's like the Proud Family peanuts, like, (laughs) but it's just his whole head. I couldn't actually, I had to look away actually when that was happening. Yeah, it was really classy. You're right, up until the end there. I kind of wish they had just gotten like an actual old dude. (laughs) But then we see so many other crusty, dusty, old zombie mummy vampires that it's like, okay, we just had to go for it. Yeah. So, yeah, that that happens. He's deteriorating in front of our eyes. So he runs off to Sarah's lab and asks for an appointment, but she blows him off. And in the time he's, like, sitting in the waiting room, he basically ages to, like, 75. That is the most stressful. That's this whole movie is this one scene. The, The tone of the whole movie is this one scene where he's waiting for her in this lobby and everything is happening in slow motion, but also very quickly. Like he's aging so quick. It's all in fucking slow-mo. I'm surprised there's not a single curtain in this scene, <laughs> but it puts you so on edge. Yeah. No, the whole film, you're just like waiting for the next bad thing to happen and it will happen. It keeps coming. <laughs> so yeah, basically he heads back home, a husk of a human, yeah. like a boiled peanut. Death's door. And he has, like, this crazy voice. And another fun fact I have about this uh, moment when he looks the way he looks is that, like, his voice is, like, really low and hoarse and crazy. To achieve this, David Bowie said the days before shooting these scenes, he would go to the George Washington Bridge every night and scream all the rock songs he knew at the top of his voice so that he was just, like, ruining his voice for this role. Oh, wow. For this role. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, I walked in here like I didn't like this movie. Lizzie walked in here like, I've got things to say that I liked and I didn't like. You don't like this movie either. <laughs> I'm having so much fun. I really can't tell you. I do know that this wasn't a movie that I just watched and then forgot about. Like, mm-hmm. I watched it and then I wanted to watch it again because I was confused. And then I just kept thinking about it. Yeah. So there's something to be said about that. <laughs> Sting. I don't listen to his music with the fact that he <laughs> keeps making it. <laughs> exactly. So this is when I started losing my shit watching this for the first time. So David Bowie's all like dusty, crusty. He is falling apart, you guys. He's probably like 110 years old at this point. Does he die? No. Miriam, who's still young and beautiful and wearing lipstick, like takes him gingerly in her arms, carries him up to the attic places him in a box and like files him away next to all her other lovers that she's been doing this to for millennia. Oh, dude. Oh my God. And the saddest part is like before she like puts him into cold storage, he's like, kiss me, please. And she's like, no, (laughs) bruh, you look so fucked up. But it's like, they can't die. They just live in these little boxes for ever. And I'm thinking, and this is where I started doing the Twilight Girl math, where I'm just like, what if you rip them all apart? <laughs> Do they finally die? Like, Or if they get fire burnt up or... Okay, so we're establishing the rules. The rule is, the first rule is that like vampires are born. They can't be made. You could make like hybrids, but they... They will eventually expire. They eventually expire. Yeah, they, their youth expires. So that's the first rule. The second rule is that for those hybrids, they can never die. Yes. They live in perpetuity and just have like a disgusting, sad existence, right? Living in a box. Yeah. In Mm -hmm. the attic. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. (coughs) I just want to establish all the rules we're going to (coughs) break. And also with the blood, like we're not sure, do they eat the blood? Because at one point, I forgot to mention this, but there's like a young girl who actually reminds me a lot of you. Alice? Alice reminds me a lot of you. She's like a gum smacking, kind of smart ass, carries around a Polaroid camera. That's such a compliment because Alice is my favorite character in this entire movie. She's the funniest character. The reason I had like such gender envy watching Alice because she's a young girl, but I didn't realized she was a girl until they started like investigating. And then I went back and I watched the first like 30 minutes of the movie and I realized she's wearing skirts and stuff, but she looks exactly like uh, one of the brothers from Hanson. Yeah, definitely. She's like very androgynous and like very cute. And I only realized that she was a girl later when they call her Alice. And then they, I remembered she was like in a skirt, but well, Very she's wearing a skirt, but with like pants underneath. Yes. And like a little boy's track jacket. Mm-hmm. It's really cute and a really so great character. It could have just been like the little girl across the street who's like super femme or whatever. But they made her an interesting character. And John, in like a fit of desperation, I guess, to try to remain alive, he ends up feeding on her and oh, killing yeah. her, mm-hmm. which just felt so unnecessary. But was like a pretty crazy cool scene because she's like learning classical music from them. Like Miriam and John teach her how to play the violin, which, by the way, David Bowie learned to play cello for this role. For this role. (laughs) For this role. I'm sure it wasn't hard because he's like a savant, but. No, of course. But still, he took the time. You could have. You could have phoned it in a little. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that doesn't work. Alice is dead. He's gone. Almost immediately, Dr. Roberts shows up at Miriam's door, Susan Sarandon, and is like, oh, hey, just coming to check on your husband. I, like, blew him off the other day and he was looking pretty bad. Uh, have you seen him? She's like, no, he's gone to Switzerland or whatever. And, like, within minutes of them knowing each other, within 24 hours, 
we have a seduction scene, and I want to show you that scene. So in this scene, Miriam invites Sarah Roberts in for a drink of sherry, and they spend a moment over the piano. It's like me by the lip. Lakme is a Brahmin princess in India. She has a slave named Malika. Malika? Is it a love song? I told you, it was sung by two women. Sounds like a love song. And I suppose that's what it is. Are you making a pass at me, Mrs. Blaylock? Not that I'm aware of, Sarah. This fucking song. So Lizzie just showed me the scene of Sarah and Miriam. Miriam's at the piano and Sarah is so clearly obsessed with Miriam. And before the scene starts has like been kind of drilling her with questions because she's so intrigued by Miriam. And then Sarah says, are you making a pass at me? Which I I was gobsmacked when I watched this movie again for this episode because I was like, you're making a pass at her. She Obviously. said two words this entire time. But I guess we're meant to believe that because she's a vampire, she's like hypnotic and has like an energy. Yeah, there's like scenes leading up to this where Sarah just feels like drawn back to Miriam's house. Like she's in her office and she picks up the phone even though it doesn't ring and is like, mm-hmm. hello. Which I actually did like that part of the world like Miriam's pull is so strong on her like something is bringing her back Mm -hmm. Um, and she kind of goes willingly into Miriam's embrace yeah I did like that as well what happens after this is lesbian sex and like a lot of it it is like I mentioned disobedience earlier because of like I don't want to get too much into the weeds with disobedience in case you haven't seen it but the, the sex scene is pretty iconic for a number of reasons and this scene It's just curtains. It's just like them kissing inside of curtains (laughs) in slow motion. And like it kind of makes me queasy. And then. And like everyone like barely touching. Just like like the tips. It's like they're tickling each other. (laughs) It's like ASMR with the curtains and the tickling and. And the spitting. (laughs) And the burping. And then they feed on each other. Yeah. At the end of this scene, Miriam sucks like a hickey. And, like, sucks blood out of Sarah's arm, and she does the same. She has Sarah, like, draw blood out of her arm sensually amongst the curtains, of course. Openly sensual. (laughs) Yeah. It reminds me of Tony Scott's attempt at hetero lovemaking in Top Gun, where it's just, like, Tom Cruise and that woman in, like, full silhouette with curtains. By the way, there are curtains the whole time in that scene. So this is, like, his signature. I really do appreciate that it's not him like fumbling the bag and not understanding how women have sex. It's like, I don't think he knows how anyone has sex. Yeah, right. If there's any good and great thing happening in this scene, any solid interpretation, we have one person to thank for that. And that is Susan Sarandon. She said, I'm going to draw from personal experience, baby. (laughs) I know how to fuck a woman. I have a clip to show you from a documentary that I love. 
that Susan Sarandon has something to say about this particular scene. Oh, what is it? The celluloid closet? The celluloid closet. Yeah, I'm obsessed with that documentary. I know every single scene of that documentary. Where did you first see this documentary? Do you remember? Um, Actually, my husband told me about it. When I first met him in his class, John McGowan Hartman. We have to get this man on the podcast. The way I'm concerned that he's a gay man, because he's like every single man I'm ever attracted to, turns out to be gay. And he showed me fucking Videodrome and the celluloid closet, both of which are huge parts of my character. This documentary, I cannot recommend enough. It was the first movie that I ever torrented because I wanted a copy of it on my computer in 2013 when Mm -hmm. I was in that class. And it just blew my mind. It's basically the documentary version of what we're doing right now. Yeah. And like rediscovering this documentary because of this clip like blew my mind. I was like the thing that always drew me to film and the subtext of what was going on, specifically with the queer stories that were just like buried or hidden, we're doing right now. Yes. It's so fucking full circle. And I've been obsessed with this is this is probably one of my favorite documentaries next to Paris is Burning and Grey Gardens. It's great because it's on Delta Airlines now. You can no watch way. the celluloid closet when you're on Delta and they offer the like video in flight. So if you are ever on a Delta flight and you don't have anything to do, I recommend the celluloid closet. It's so interesting. And I'm going to show you a clip from that documentary where Susan Sarandon is discussing the sex scene in The Hunger. Originally in the script, it was um, kind of a playboy version of them getting together. In other words, it had a lot to do with lingerie and posing, and there was no real scene. And so I said, you know, that I really thought that what was sexy would be the first moment that people touch. So I came up with the little scene where she spills something on herself and she gives her something and they touch that way and then they have a kiss and then you go into all of the kind of curtains blowing over their bodies stuff that's happening. I have two things to say. Celluloid Closet. We can sing the praise for that film any higher. Please go see it. It was also the documentary in which Susan Sarandon, I mean, she right now admits to the fact that she wrote in this scene in The Hunger where they like seduce each other. But she also, Susan Sarandon is responsible for the ending of Thelma and Louise. So she also talks about that in The Cellular Closet. So that's one of the things I wanted to say. But the second thing I wanted to say is for some reason, this is reminding me of we right now are in a writer's strike. Mm -hmm. And the last writer's strike was in 2008. And The writer's strike happened in the middle of them shooting James Bond. What is it? Like Quantum Solace or what is like the worst Daniel Craig James Bond? Quantum Solace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It happened right in the middle. And so (laughs) Daniel Craig had to write his own lines as James (laughs) Bond. Because the writers couldn't do it. Because legally the writers could not do it. And he was like, why the fuck do I have to do this? I'm not a writer. I'm just an actor. And it it is actually some of the most terrible (laughs) film I've ever seen in my entire life. Meanwhile, Susan Sarandon is like, they were missing the scene that I just threw in. (laughs) Bisexuals doing the work to put movies on screen, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. solving the problems in record time, on budget, Mm -hmm. on schedule. There is nothing in this world that bisexuals couldn't solve if they just like felt like it. Yeah, I agree. We're very smart. Bridges, (laughs) infrastructure. We're like, We see both sides. Let's put a bridge. Exactly. They are the glue that is holding society together. I love this commentary because she also talks about the fucking curtains, which like 
what is with that? What is so like wispy and delicate and like gentle and like barely brushing lips about two women having sex in reality? And she goes on to say in this documentary that anytime you see this kind of love at this time portrayed on film, it was in a way, it was always non-threatening to the people that were running Hollywood and it's still running running Hollywood to this day and that is straight white men. You had to write these queer scenes in a way that was unobtrusive to what they thought sex should be. So if they thought sex should be like rough and masculine and like dominating, like they're like, okay, well we have to do the opposite of that to show that we're not encroaching upon their territory. Like that still belongs to the men. You should not feel threatened. Yeah. And it reminds me of a conversation that we had similarly when we discussed My Policeman, Mm -hmm. where My Policeman was released like a year ago, and that's the film with Harry Styles in it. But this is not a spoiler. When they do have a sex scene, it is all through a mirror's reflection. Right, like not looking directly at it. Exactly. So it implies that the audience shouldn't or can't or would be bad for them to look directly at gay sex. Right. And are the curtains there to do that, to diffuse the sensuality, to obscure what's really going on for whatever reason? Like, mm-hmm. what what about sexuality is this guy trying to hide? Yeah. And everyone's very intentionally androgynous as well. Yeah. Susan Sarandon is wearing David Bowie's clothes pretty much and her hair is yeah. like cropped pretty short and she's like quite masculine and her face is very effeminate. And then David Bowie's always been markedly androgynous. And then that child who, when I read the synopsis on Wikipedia, said that Miriam was training Alice, the child, to be her cohort or... Yeah, like grooming her to be like her next companion. And she's very markedly and intentionally androgynous as well. Yeah. Which I don't get that read in the film itself because John starts to die after Alice has been in their life for like a year. Mm -hmm. And she seems really concerned about Alice um, and really actually does want to like please her. Like she says, you know, baloney or whatever it is Alice Mm -hmm. wants her to say when she's taking her photo. Mm -hmm. She doesn't seem to be like grooming her, but I could see that read. But Maybe it's more apparent in the book. Yeah, it definitely feels like there's – the synopsis for this film is always a little skewed. It's like, oh, love triangle, like all these hot button words that got me to watch the film. So – There you go. So long story short, Miriam feeds on Sarah. Sarah starts getting the hunger for blood (laughs) and ends up killing her own boyfriend. That guy sucked anyways. That guy sucked anyways. She ends up confronting Miriam and Miriam's like, oh, you belong to me now. We'll never, ever grow old. We'll never die. We'll be together forever. And I'm like. That's a lie. The most intense display of U-Hauling I've ever seen. As a lesbian, yeah, no, this is very accurate to the first date. <laughs> You're like, I have no notes about this part of the plot. Most realistic bit for me, thank you. Yeah. Um, I do love the ending. Basically, Sarah, like, punctures her own neck while she and Miriam are making out and, like, forces Miriam to drink her blood, which for some reason is, like, Miriam's undoing. Even though Miriam has drunk drank her Her blood blood before before. whatever she carries what she believes is sarah's dead body up to the closet to put her in the box you know to add to her collection and for some reason all of her exes and their like mummified state start like coming to life crawling out of their boxes and like crawling towards her trying to kiss her and love on her and she's just like totally freaked out she does not want to kiss these boiled peanuts no not at all (laughs) i'm laughing my ass off she's running (laughs) through curtains to get away from them slow motion 
curtains for and like, like Dutch angles. Ten, ten minutes. I actually had I couldn't look right at it because it was making me nauseous. It's so stressful. Mm-hmm. But they all like crowd her, and she ends up like falling off of the top floor of her house and like hitting the ground at the bottom floor and for some reason like dissolving into dust the science behind it makes no sense to me they only gave us two rules and then they broke them immediately yeah (laughs) the rules being vampires are born and not made and that the vampires who are made these like hybrid vampires will live their eternity with no agency as like corpses like in darkness They broke both of those and then didn't tell us why or how. And then infuriatingly, and this was the final scene of the film was something they added later as a pickup. But we see Sarah like in a big fancy high rise apartment still alive. Mm -hmm. Sure. I don't know. Was she supposed to be dying before? Miriam sure seemed to think so. Anyway, she has like a woman and a man in the apartment with her. The woman approaches Sarah through curtains. Get me out of here. Kisses her. In the curtains. (laughs) And then the fucking movie ends. Oh, oh, wait, wait, no. And then you hear Sarah's, you hear Miriam in a box in Sarah's basement or whatever calling for her. Sarah. So I. Sarah. Sarah. Oh my God. Um, I'm dumbfounded because the rule that we understood that these companions to Miriam could not die. Right. Before the mummies even resurrected around Miriam after that. Miriam believes Sarah's going to die. Right. Why would she believe that? Right. And why would Sarah stab her own neck to have Miriam drink her blood? She's already done that. She's done it she already. She did that in the sex scene. And why would Miriam think she's going to die? She, why, she's, she knows she's not. She knows she's not. And, and why, why does would it that awaken give the power to these mummies? I have no clue. And why is them surrounding her somehow enough to make her the only person who shouldn't age and die? Age and die. I have no clue. It's actually very frustrating. I was like trying to figure out the rules and like uh, trying to make any justification and I just couldn't. Everything seemed just random. You have to really like the style of this movie to get anything from this movie. And as a person who happens to not like the style, it is nothing. And even fucking Susan Sarandon, David Bowie, two of my all-time crushes, they could not save it for me. Oh, maybe if they had kissed at least once. Been in the same room for more than two seconds. Where he wasn't like 75 years old. When he old. wasn't already a boiled peanut. would have been great. <laughs> Jesus. On to the reception. I'm like tragically upset to announce that I never could find a budget for this film, which is very weird for films this old. Usually it's very readily available. I can assume it was a flop. Yeah. This David guy. Bowie, Susan Sarandon. Catherine Deneuve. Come on. I don't think critics didn't really like it. Mixed reviews. Um, Roger Ebert hit the nail on the head with his review. Yeah. Um, the goths loved it, though. Wait, what did Roger Ebert say? He said, The Hunger is an agonizingly bad vampire movie circling around an exquisitely effective sex scene. Sorry, but that's the way it is. And your reporter has to be honest. Wow. The only thing he commended was Susan Sarandon's gay improv. <laughs> Wow. That's huge. That's Susan Sarandon. You deserve everything that you've ever received. Apparently, Tony Scott was like so depressed reading the reviews after this film. He never read another review again for any of his work and was also convinced that he would never make another film until they offered him Top Gun. 
men <laughs> live in a different plane of reality. Are you fucking kidding me? It's like that guy on TikTok that's like, hey, I'm out here in the woods. I'm going to share my coordinates in the comments so someone can come <laughs> so someone can come camp with me. And a woman like stitches that and is like, are you serious? <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Okay, so we're playing different games right now. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Alice Wu wrote and directed Saving Face and never got a comparable like feature film release right after that a movie that is like basically flawless and accurately depicts gay love a movie that is like on par with everything everywhere all at once like 30 made 30 years ago for like 10 dollars. yeah and tony scott (laughs) fucked curtains for like two and a half hours and they gave him top gun i am gonna be sick look no one else was gonna make top gun as gay as him though i do appreciate him for that i do i do because that movie, you guys, I really can't stress <laughs> enough. You should go listen to our Top Gun episode and revisit that film. It is f- fucking gay. On to the scores. Oh, Lizzie. Sam, can you explain how the scores work for me, love? Horror pipes. Um, how the subtextual score works is we rate the film on how good is it and how gay is it. We give that film scores out of 10. Average the scores and get an overall subtextual score. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> this is, this is Are you really singing Lion King 2 right now? If you don't get out of my head, I'm going to start charging you rent. We share one brain. We just, <laughs> we just volleyball it to each other. Bump that spike that <laughs> shit back and forth. I was like, was it the celluloid closet? <laughs> you bet your ass it was. <laughs> oh, we should do the celluloid closet on this. It podcast. would just be us watching it. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're right. We just illegally <laughs> upload right. the cellular closet. <laughs> okay, Sam, on a scale of one to ten, I'm going to ask you the easy one first. Ten. It's gay. All right. Gay sex. Gay sex. I'm going to give it a nine. Why? <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> what did you want to see? It's gay sex. Nine. I'll give it a ten. Thank you. Come on, have some fucking decorum. On a scale of 1 to 10, Sam, how good is this film? Um, It is quantifiable, I would say, how I feel about (laughs) this. It better be. (laughs) If you give me a color right now, I'm going to kill you. It's a Thursday for me. It's more of like a purple for me. There's a number for films that I don't like, and that number is two. A two? God damn. Because people put in effort and were paid salaries yeah. to put costumes on people. And then, you know, it was all chopped together. And then audiences did pay money to see it. You know what? I will give this film a five because I'm a whore for style over substance. We got to see Susan Sarandon for real have sex with a woman. Like, did we? Or did we see curtains? I mean, part of it, it was a body double. Which, if I was Susan Sarandon's fucking sex body double, you better believe I'd be bringing that into every conversation I ever have for the rest of my life. Wait, what? There was a body double during the sex scene? Not all of it. Some of it. What part? I don't know. You see her face a lot. Yeah. I guess Dick Smith or whatever the makeup artist's name was, was was like just reconstructing someone's face. (laughs) It's David David Bowie's body with like Susan Sarandon's face. You You said Dick Smith. In the way, like, people would say, like, I'm a wordsmith. Is <laughs> that <laughs> like an occupation? Dick Smith. A dick smith? Well, a dick Very smith hard. had to come in and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> had to fix it up. You know. That gives The Hunger the subtextual score of 6.8, which is just fine. Just fine. Sam, what are you hungry for? 
I don't ever want to see a curtain. You know how in Mommy Dearest, she's like, why are hangers? That's how I feel about curtains right now. I'm hungry for not that. Blinds, fine. Just sunlight hitting me right in the face at all hours of the day. That sounds great. What are you hungry for, Lizzie? I'm hungry to watch another vampire movie. Okay. Twilight? Guys, we're going to do Twilight on the podcast. If you've made it this far, you deserve to know that. All right. See you later. Okay, can you play Bella's song on the way out? <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.